issues of property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods. Properties. Commodification. Ownership. Property. Appropriate. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the third episode of the Appropriate Podcast, the podcast of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. My name is Charlotte Domberg, and I will give you a short introduction on our second episode about the future of social rights. This episode is the second part of three episodes that are inspired by the notion of social property as developed by the late French sociologist Robert Castel. In this episode, Julie Froud, who is professor for financial innovation at the University of Manchester, will talk about the topic Rethinking the Foundational Economy and Collective Infrastructures. Before she starts, Markus Kipp, who works in the subproject Debating the Public Sphere and the Future of Commons, will introduce her. After the input, there will be a short discussion with her. Julie Froud is a professor of financial innovation at the University of Manchester in the UK and a member of the Foundational Economy Collective. Building on previous research on financialization and corporations, her fo current focus is on developing the research agenda on the foundational economy. She has been particularly involved in research in Wales, where the foundational economy has been recognized by government, third sector and civil society organizations. Among her many publications, I would like to make sure that all of you are aware of her important book that she co-wrote with members of the Foundational Economy Collective entitled Foundational Economy, the Infrastructure of Everyday Life, published in 2018 translated in several languages. Julie, we're very pleased uh, to have you here today. A very warm welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Marcus, for the introduction and thank you to, to Silke and, and the whole team for the, for the invitation. It's a really interesting event and um, thinking about it triggered all kinds of ideas in my mind and I struggled a little bit to get to, to contain them all in a lecture so apologies in advance. It was really interesting listening to, to Silke, uh, Stefan and, uh, and Marcus just now because many of those themes were sort of you know were resonating with me as I'm thinking about the foundational economy and the different connections to your research agenda. So I'm going to talk about the foundational economy and also this really important current problem about, about how we rethink it, adapt it, renew it. Um, and those are really challenging issues in relation to this particular set of collective infrastructures. So I guess in a, you know, in, in, in summary form, the, 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 the challenge that the, the, the presentation tries to address is how can we think about the adaptation of the foundational economy to deliver benefits to citizens and this is in a, in a forward-looking sense rather than looking back and how can we also think about this in relation to you know the very specific challenges we face now and also the what I'm going to talk about later in terms of systems and places because I'm sort of my my background from a business school perspective I'm interested in systems business models 
those kinds of issues and so I'm trying to think in, in quite tangible terms about how do we understand things like social property in relation to particular kinds of activities so that's that's the question I'm going to address um, I'm going to do this in five parts so first of all I'll introduce the foundational economy just in case people don't never heard of it and don't know what it is I will look a little bit backwards because I think it's helpful to kind of think about how do we get, how did we get here? So how did the foundational economy kind of come about in a, in a Western European context, at least? Um, how did we end up with a set of collective infrastructures which increasingly become problematic in all kinds of ways? Then I want to think about the, the challenges we face and the idea of, you know, we're in a phase of transition and the transition could go in different ways. The transition could end up, you know, becoming a kind of negative spiral of deterioration, or it could be something that actually meets the social and ecological needs more effectively in the future. So I want to highlight um, just some of the challenges that we have and some of the ways of thinking about those. And then I want to come back to the ideas of kind of systems and places and give a few examples of different ways of thinking about um, collective infrastructures of quite different kinds and how we might think about um, social property or as I'm kind of thinking about you know specific aspects of that like participation so that will hopefully become apparent later and then I will reflect and conclude and hopefully I'll do it all keeping you not keep you too uh, too long so first thing is uh, introduction to the foundational economy and what I want to do here is kind of think about you know how do we understand the economy and why are collective infrastructures so important so just a very going back right to the beginning the 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 the, the, the sort of foundational economy collective kind of highlighted this idea of the foundational economy because we thought this is there's a group of goods and services which are essential to everyday life. And those things, in a sense, connect us to kind of to the economic, you know, they help us get to work, literally, they allow us to go about our social life, participate culturally, and politically. So they're not simply a set of market services, though many of them are sold to us through markets, they have a kind of moral force as well. So they're, they're, they're a set of things are provided through different systems which have this kind of higher level of significance. So the foundational economy approach therefore is trying to think about these everyday infrastructures um, and very kind of practical questions, you know, how were they created, how are they managed, how are they financed, how do they get to be renewed, how from the different perspective are they organized, how do we access them, and I think all of those questions are quite important if we're trying to think about sort of social property kind of aspects because they connect very much with that wider set of questions so how do we think about the collective nature of those things because that's a that's a defining characteristic of the foundational economy and how do we think about the interconnections of you know the foundational economy as a set of economic sectors with the kind of the wider world of social cultural and ecological um, things 
so the, I guess one of the starting points for thinking about the foundational economy was trying to understand the economy in, in, in a way that's 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 different from a, a mainstream economics approach. So if you've studied economics, you know, you learn about this thing, the economy, and we understand it in a very singular way. And we focus on measures like um, GDP or GVA, and we worry about economic problems like productivity and economic policy or industrial policy is typically concerned with particular activities and doing more of them or doing them more efficiently or in a more competitive way and this seems to be a very uh, very limited way to view the economy that's you know we see when we look outside the window or we leave our offices and homes and walk down the street the economy that we observe is is much bigger and and, and more diverse than that so in some senses, the foundational economy approach was an attempt to kind of think, well, the economy is, 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 a, is a collection of different things. You could call them zones or layers. It doesn't really matter what you call them, but there are different elements of the economy and they have different characteristics. So the, you know, on, on the slide, you know, you can think about the, the, this is the kind of the mainstream view of the economy as viewed through the, the lens of industrial policy. And that would be the kind of the competitive sectors, you know, the auto industry, pharmaceuticals, aerospace, IT, creative industries, all of those kinds of things would, would come into that um, box. But then we've got a lot of other parts of the economy, often, you know, mostly in the private sector, which we maybe we didn't come up with the best best term, but we tended to call the overlooked economy. And those are things that are quite important to us, you know, after we've all been in lockdown for months and months and the overlooked economy is pretty crucial, you know, it's going to a cafe and having a haircut. Um, you know, those those things are quite important, but they're again, they're, they're, they're not visible in mainstream sort of accounts of the economy. And then we have the foundational economy or the things I'm focused on particularly today, you know, housing, healthcare, education, transport and all of those things. And then we also have something that, you know, it's variously called the core economy, but it's all of the kind of the, the non-market aspects, the things that households and communities do um, as part of their kind of, you know, re, 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 their own reproduction. It's things that happen outside of a market, which, which are incredibly important. So I've, I've kind of represented these zones of the economy in a kind of as a series of levels, which is, again, you know, we, we could debate that that's probably not the best way of doing it because these are all interconnected. It's not that one is on top of the other or one is underneath the other. They, they, they all matter in different ways and they all support each other in different ways, but they're not all equally important or equally visible in the way you think about policy and what matters. So what we were trying to do is reclaim the idea of the economy as some as a, as, a, as a site for action, but that policy needs to understand these different aspects of the economy, their importance in different ways and the way they support each other in different ways. So in a, you know, to go a little bit further into this question, you know, what, what exactly is in the foundational economy? Well, it's a question of categorization. Um, all categorizations are a little bit imperfect, I guess, and people like to have arguments about, well, why is that included and that not included? What we were trying to do at the kind of, you know, in the, in, in, in the you know, in a, in a simple way was to try to identify a set of kind of, you know, essential services, which, you know, many households would use on a daily basis. And these are things that are sort of daily essentials which contribute to you know safe and civilized living they're things that you can't imagine not 
having access to without your, you know, your living standards being significantly worse. So it includes both those um, providential or welfare um, sectors, health, education, care, social security, but also the, the more material infrastructures, um, you know, the, the, the pipes, the cables, the networks that connect up homes and, and, and organizations, food distribution systems, transportation systems, retail banking systems. So these are all different kinds of infrastructures because they kind of connect households up to a, a bigger set of things. So in terms of what counts as foundational, it's that they're essential. Um, you, you know, in other terminology, you could call them basic. They, you know, they, they, they're enabling um, services. We consume them not necessarily as an end product, but as a kind of intermediate product. And that's, that's one aspect of it, that they're essential. But I think the second aspect, which is equally important, is that there's a collective aspect to either production, distribution, or consumption. And that's what makes them important in terms of how do we think about the design of these. These are, these are systems that have a collective character, but they're all very different. So if we take you know, any of those systems, they're, 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 they're not exactly the same. So foundational economy approach is not simply to say, well, let's divide the economy up into different pieces, but it's trying to think about how would we approach those parts of the economy. Um, you know, it's, it goes without saying that the foundation of the economy is, you know, of huge economic significance. So on the, the slide, just a very simple comparison of UK, Italy and Germany. And you can see that you know, the, the economies, those three economies are quite different in lots of ways. But the relative scale of both the material and the providential sectors are pretty similar in relation to the contribution to employment. So you're looking at roundabout somewhere between 35% and almost half of employment um, in the foundational economy it tends to be higher in deindustrialized areas where there's less kind of other, you know, tradable goods. Um, but it's a very similar picture. So it provides a lot of employment, but also that employment is distributed everywhere. So you go to any part of Western Europe and you will find foundational economy infrastructure. So it's really important part of the economy because it's not sort of focused in some towns and regions but not in others you find it everywhere and that again is important in terms of policy so that's the kind of introduction to the foundational economy the next step is to think about is to look back briefly and sort of think about the kind of you know how we got here and what the legacy is of that set of um, collective infrastructures that have been developed so in, in thinking about the foundational economy and using a, uh, quite a, a, you know, a rather simplistic label of you know, foundational economy 1.0, it's, 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 it's simple, but it's, it's, it's helpful in a way because what we're trying to do is separate out that sort of set of you know, really important developments you know, largely between 1880 and, and the 1950s in, in Western Europe, perhaps it's slightly different times in different countries, and for different systems. But over that period of 70 or 80 years, you can see we had the development of this whole set of socio-technical um, systems delivering goods and services which meet very specific social and economic needs. 
and those infrastructures were developed through a whole series of you know technologies new engineering technologies to get water and and, and electricity and gas to people in their homes social technologies around social security providing universal health care you know there was a huge set of innovations that allowed those infrastructures to be developed and you know they had a huge transformative effect so most immediately they had a big improvement in terms of public health so adding roughly 20 years to to life expectancy on the on the screen there's a very um, old map of Manchester uh, where I'm from and Manchester of course a hugely important industrial city but a city with 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 appalling public health people dying of cholera people malnourished um, so it was a kind of it was a sort of social and political project as much as an economic project to improve the kind of you know the 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 public health and of course this had the the benefit as well from from a capitalist perspective of improving the quality of labor so your workers are going to work harder and live longer so it, there's always been a kind of dual element about the extent to which this is providing things for their own sake as well as providing things that benefit um, property owners i guess so a lot of the foundational economy um, was um, influenced very much by state actions, particularly municipalities, which really grew uh, on the basis of providing a lot of these collective infrastructures. Some of it was private activities and investments, some of it hybrid. And through this, the state is continually developing its responsibilities around regulation, legal provisions, financing, universal access standards, and all those kinds of things. So in a sense, it, it's part of the development of the state. Um, to think about in the 2018 book, which I just to think about this notion of the foundational economy and um, citizenship, and we draw on T.H. Marshall's notion of notion of social citizenship, which he sort of draws the line from the kind of the development of, of political rights and being included politically with universal access to you know, what we call the providential services, health, education and welfare. So he, he, he highlights this notion about social citizenship where you get universal access to, to these, um, these social services. And what the foundational economy does in addition is extend this further through the material systems. Um, now, they weren't designed to provide social citizenship. It's a kind of consequence in lots of ways, because many of these were services developed you know, by the private sector. But the collective outcome of the foundational economy systems is that it, it extends citizenship in that way. So there's always been a bit of an ambiguity that it's a kind of outcome more than a design in some cases, but nonetheless incredibly important. So this original collection of foundational services um, has some quite interesting characteristics. It's largely organized on a top-down basis from a municipal level down or a national level. Um, it results in very large bureaucracies. There's very li little scope for what we might now think about as kind of democratic participation. And even where there's a kind of paternalistic um, motivation, particularly by you know, municipalities who are trying to provide access to services it's not being done in a kind of um, in a way of enhancing social kind of rights in that participative sense it's more the case of making um, access to these services for the benefit of citizens 
So all kinds of interesting things happen at a municipal level. So municipalities introduce gas and electricity services. Those are profitable and that allows the cross subsidy of things like water and public transportation systems. So there's, there's, you know, there's important things going on here. So rights kind of happen, but they happen in an incomplete way and not entirely in a, in a designed way. And that's quite different from the kinds of more recent developments we see in terms of attempts to confer rights more formally through constitutions or charters. So on the on the screen, there's an extract from the, um, the South African constitution. And you can see that there, is, there are constitutional rights set out to housing, healthcare, food, water, social security. Elsewhere, it also covers education. I couldn't fit it all on the screen. That's a kind of different approach in a sense to sort of start by saying, well, there are these rights, um, which of course leads to the question about how are those rights to be um, fulfilled? So how are the relevant services like housing, food, social security, how are those to be provided? How are they to be financed? How are they to be organized? And what kinds of participation is to be possible? So in a sense, that's a different route um, which raises lots of questions. The kind of where we are in Western Europe, you know, in a sense is a different journey, but it equally raises all kinds of questions about looking forward about how might those rights, whether they're formally or informally um, stated, how might they be fulfilled and where does participation fit in? So if you're looking back at the foundational economy, we might say, well, it was a it was a huge achievement. But um, from the 1980s onwards, as was mentioned earlier, we've in, entered a different phase of not building collective infrastructures so much as either ne just neglecting them or, um, or undermining them in all kinds of different ways. So the foundational economy gets undermined at the point where private consumption becomes more valuable. You have an underinvestment in these collective infrastructures. We have various combinations of privatization, outsourcing, marketization, you know, different combinations in different places and in different systems, but a sort of relentless sort of move in this direction, which breaks up those infrastructures. It, it underinvests in them. Um, at the, also at the point where, of course, we start to see, as was mentioned earlier, kind of changes in employment relations, making households more precarious, at the point where those infrastructures become even more important, in some ways, they become even um, less um, well loved and less invested. Um, so we get the also the developments of sort of para, parallel new kinds of private infrastructures, particularly around technology, um, where lots of investment is going into developing new infrastructures, which to some extent kind of are a counterweight to these older social infrastructures. So, you know, financialization we know has had um, very negative effects on lots of the foundational economy. The, the slide gives you um, a, a simplified version of um, the corporate structure of um, a healthcare chains. This is a residential um, care home chain um, owned by a, a private equity firm, Terra Firma. Terra Firma. And this is, this, is, this is their corporate structure. You can see it consists of 15 layers of companies. Um, many of them um, end up in tax havens. So the whole corporate structure is designed to avoid paying tax, to isolate assets so that assets are protected in the result, in the, in the event, as often happens in these cases, that there's um, 
the company has too much debt, it collapses, but the assets are protected and can be sold on. So sort of something like care goes from being you know a social service to being something that a financialized provider is thinking about you know how do we how do we manage the assets how do we manage the 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 activities in ways that protect the private interest so i won't spend more time on that but we can always come back to that in question so this is this is part of the problem about neglect and fragmentation now in some senses if we fast forward you know from that sort of break around the early 1980s to the last two years, then in a way COVID-19 is a little bit of a wake-up call because suddenly the foundational economy um, it, it are all the services that we remember that we need and um, lots of us were able to sit at home and carry on working and lots of workers in the foundational economy carried on going to work and exposing themselves to risk and we came up with categories like essential workers um, and we, you know, we thought that you know the heroes of the economy are not the investment bankers, but the people driving the bus or on the checkout at the supermarket, and that was all great. But of course, there's always a problem about how do we sustain that interest. So, you know, that was a crisis where there was attention paid to these sectors and these workers in particular. But you can see already that that interest is 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 not sustained in any in any coherent way. So I think that you know we can't assume that the foundational economy will be recognised and will be renewed in the ways that need to happen. It requires new, new thinking, new doing, new kinds of interventions, and that's what I want to look at um, in the rest of the presentation. So we have all kinds of challenges for the foundational economy, and this is you know if we shift from thinking about the foundational economy 1.0 that original set of infrastructures bringing you know energy water food banking you know to our doorstep the challenge is thinking about how do how do we rethink those infrastructures for the contemporary challenges that we face so we need to think about you know the adaptation of those um, foundational infrastructures and we start from a position where clearly there's lots of problems we have a legacy of not simply underinvestment, but also kind of political neglect and deprioritization and you know all kinds of repercussions for social democratic politics because the things that were sort of being delivered, particularly in a um, you know in the middle to the late part of the 20th century, have simply you know changed in their status. We've got problems of growing inequality, you know, particularly an issue in relation to housing. So housing emerges as a key infrastructure um, where you know private property is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a really important issue. We've got nature and climate emergencies which means that we need to rethink these systems you know they remain essential but they are also very damaging. And we need to also look forward in the sense that we can't just kind of go back to where we were. So it's not a case of saying let's reverse changes that have happened in the sense we have to go forward differently in terms of um, you know, politics in terms of organization and other things. So if we think about this, you know, realizing this sort of foundational economy 2.0 as, you know, as a kind of where we want to get to, then it requires a kind of 
changes in the way we think and do things. And I think this is a really interesting challenge for academics. You know, we like thinking, the doing thing is a bit trickier. And that's why, you know, the, this workshop is very nice because it, it's bringing those things together explicitly. So challenges we've got, we've got, a, we've got, you know, nature and climate emergency, ecological challenges. We've got challenges around, well, if we reject ideas like GDP and economic growth as being sort of simple single measures, how do we know if something is good? How do we know if, we, if things are getting better? So how do we think about different measures that capture livability or well-being more effectively? And how do we think about what I'm calling participation, which kind of connects with the idea of social property? What, is it, what would it mean to, to have you know, some control over this property, whatever that is? So these are some way of kind of thinking about the challenges. And what I want to do is think about those in relation to both um, systems, which, allow, which requires us to be more specific you know, instead of talking about collective infrastructures very generally, as I've been doing, we need to kind of look at very specific systems and their characteristics. And how do we also think about that in relation to places? Because although, as I said, foundational economy is everywhere, it's one of the kind of defining features is that you find it everywhere. Places are very different, and therefore we need to think about those place specificities as well. So, um, our first challenge is, um, you know, is how do we renew the foundational economy within planetary limits? We know that this needs to happen. I think we're sort of over that point of people disagreeing about the importance. And the foundational economy is kind of really at the heart of this, because if you add together just food, transport and housing, that accounts for more than half of, of emissions. So in a sense, we can't Get to something like net zero without fundamentally looking at some of these major um, infrastructure systems so you know the foundational economy has to be you know inevitably is, is part of that um so it, it also it, it not only includes you know addressing you know emissions around sectors like food and housing and transport but it also provides an opportunity because of course a lot of the services in healthcare education and so on are inherently low carbon. So there's, you know, there's problems, but there's also opportunities. Things that contribute to livability and good life also happen to be low carbon, so we could do more of them. And we also need to think about you know, new systems. So it's not the case of saying, well, we have a system, we have to renew it. We might need to think creatively about new systems. For example, you know, an economy based more around wood and less around concrete and steel. How do we think about all of those things in a coherent way. So can we kind of think about this renewal challenge, but can we also do it in ways that um, helps to address problems of income, residual income and livability? And that's the second challenge. So I think, you know, it's, 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 it's widely recognised that conventional measures of economic success like GVA and GDP are pretty much discredited. Um, you know, because they attempt to add up everything in terms of sort of market values. And sometimes we don't really know whether higher GDP means we're actually doing better or worse for all kinds of well-rehearsed reasons. But then the challenge is, of course, it's very easy to, in an academic way, to critique something. It's always more difficult to think about what the alternatives are. But we can do that if we, you know, think about, well, what matters in terms of, 
you know, you could call it livability, you could call it well-being, it can be described in different ways, but are there alternative ways of focusing that question about what matters, which not only think about, you know, market values, but think about civic values, domestic values, other orders of worth. So instead of measuring um, household income, we could measure things like residual income. We could say, well, you know, how much of the post-tax income is spent on meeting foundational needs? Um, you know, you could choose which, which things you put into the pot. Some of them are, are more or less easy to, to capture at a household level, but housing, utilities, transport, and so on. And that tells you how much residual income is left over for households. You know, is it positive? Is it negative? Um, you know, are there important choices that have already had to take place in order for that at least to come out as a kind of, um, you know, at, at a net zero level? And we know at the moment that lots of, you know, lower income households are having to make choices just to meet those basic needs. So, you know, there, there may be no residual income. So we need to understand kind of how do you get to residual income measures? What are the costs and what are the choices that have taken place to get to that bottom line? And what are the quality aspects? Because it's not simply about a figure with, you know, so many euros or dollars. It's a question about the, the quality that's been received. So you may have a home, but it may be cold. It may be expensive to heat. You may have access to public transport, but it's very unreliable. It doesn't fit your social and your, 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 your working needs. So the quality issues also have to be captured. But residual income is, is, is also important because if we come back to this idea about the economy of different zones, the residual income affects the quality of places. You think about that overlooked economy. We all want to live somewhere that has you know, nice cafes, nice places to spend time. Well, you know, the, 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 the amount of residual income locally will, will shape those things um, quite significantly. So it, it has a knock-on effect. So have sort of played around with some of these things a couple of years back to particularly to understand the importance of housing tenure and housing cost around residual income. Because taking the, the UK and breaking the UK into different regions, we found that housing accounts from just over 10% to more than a third of disposable income. So depending upon the region and the tenure, households are spending up to a third of their um, disposable income on housing. So that would typically be somebody who's renting in the private sector in an expensive city like London. If you then take somebody who's a homeowner in a lower income region like the northeast of England, their housing costs are significantly less. So you can you could take two households, um, as I've sort of summarized on the screen here, the, 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 the household in a poorer region but owns a house, which is cheaper to buy, ends up with a much higher residual income than somebody on a much higher salary paying a private rent. Now, that's in a sense, it's, it, it, it's obvious, it, it's what we know intuitively, but it's also important because it highlights the, the relevance of thinking not only about differences between regions, but also within regions. Again, a lot of policy discourse tends to kind of draw lines in maps and talk about sort of high and, link, high and low income regions. But we know the crucial importance of um, you know, property where we live is, is really critical to um, our quality of life. 
And in particular, of course, you know, it's housing is not simply a cost, um, a home is also an asset and we get further differences between households in their ability to accumulate wealth. So that, you know, in a sense, the, that comes back to what Marcus was saying about private property, your ability to kind of transfer that will depend upon, you know, whether you have it in the first place. And now, of course, we have this new challenge of utility costs when we did this work in 2018. Utility costs were relatively small and very similar across all income levels and what we've seen in, in, in the last um, six months or so in the, in the cost of gas, we can see that we're going to have a huge livability crisis around um, a, a, you know, an element of foundational um, living which had previously not been a big problem. And then we've got places. So thinking about what matters is very much place determined. Um, having been involved in in sort of sort of place-based surveys, if you talk to people, they you know the things that are important to them are you know it includes things like well I know that everybody needs a house, but you might want a house in in a particular community because that's where you feel you belong. And then we brings in things like the social infrastructure, the parks, the libraries, the access to activities, particularly for young and old people. So all of these things matter beyond simple, you know, financial measures of residual income. We need to understand kind of, you know, the, the quality of places. So it says people know what matters to them. People often know what they want, but the, there's a challenge then about how that gets incorporated into decision making. So that's that's the third challenge, which is around participation. So as I mentioned, the you know, foundational economy in the first phase was was very much top down grand projects, um, delivering services to people. We obviously have a challenge now about how do we have a world that, you know, has a greater element of, of co-production, participation, and what are the different mechanisms that might be used? So various things can be used. We can use surveys, we can have um, deliberative processes, juries, assemblies, and these have been used increasingly to look at issues like climate change. But we also need some kind of permanent mechanisms for getting input from communities. And I think that's one of the challenges is not to have participation as, as a discrete activity, but as an ongoing activity. And that requires then integration into policy and responses. Otherwise, you know, it's not meaningful. So this is some of the challenges. What I want to do now is kind of shift towards systems because the, those kind of challenges, which are very high level, have a very particular character when we look at particular kinds of foundational economy systems and when we think about particular places. So this is um, the next step in the argument. So if we think about the foundational economy as this set of collective infrastructures or a set of reliance systems, there's a kind of real struggle about how do we reconceptualize or redesign or reorganize those and those processes will depend quite a lot upon the nature of the services so what i want to do is just take two examples one of a kind of you know capital intensive infrastructure um take the case of water and the second a human intensive service we can take the case of care now there's overlapping issues here about how do you plan them what's the appropriate scale but one of them has issues around you know assets you know how are they owned how are they governed how are they financed the other has issues much more around kind of micro level issues about service design and co-production so let's look at um, water utilities first 
So this is obviously a, a capital intensive system. So we immediately have issues about how is that infrastructure to be financed, combinations of debt and equity. Equity, as we've seen, can be highly problematic. There are ownership choices. Should these be owned as standalone entities, part of complex structures? How are assets to be managed and governed? Um, you know, all kinds of different issues. It's also a carbon and resource intensive system. So again, if we're thinking about challenges of um, nature and climate emergencies, there are a lot of you know, difficult choices to be made around intergenerational fairness. How do we manage future risks around flooding, water quality, shortages of water in some cases? Water utility companies often own a lot of land. How do we manage that green space for public benefit? How are these to be managed? Are these to be run for you know, zero profit? Are they to be run for a surplus? Should What's the importance of reducing charges to consumers versus investing in the system, reducing debts? Should we be using water to produce wider social or community benefits? So there's a kind of questions around assets, but there's also questions around the operation. You know, what's, what's an appropriate level of surplus and what, what should happen to that surplus? Now, um, you may have come across the, 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 the case of water utilities in England. It's, if you haven't and you're looking for a textbook case of how not to manage your water utilities, then, then there's plenty of rich material here. But in, in, you know, in, 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 a, in a highly summarized form, water utilities in England were privatized. In the first phase, they ended up often in multinational, highly corp complex corporate arrangements. Some of them have now been resold um, to other companies without any, any of the underlying problems being solved. They are almost all swamped in large amounts of debt. They've been um, trashed, I think you could say, um, through large dividend payouts and low investment. So in a sense, they've been kind of you know, spoiled as corporate entities. And at the same time, they have poor environmental records. And the, the, the interest of the citizen is, 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 is entirely through a very weak regulator. And the regulator is charged with monitoring all kinds of things like consumer charges, pollution levels, um, dealing with leakage. Um, but uh, the, the regulator is, is pretty useless. And quite interesting, by the 2020s, the regulator is now starting to talk about the need for a social contract with water, which is, you know, quite, 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 quite a, a, a laughable concept, given where we're starting from. But even in that context, you can see that there's a there's a need to kind of think about doing things differently. If we look at other parts of the UK, there are different models. So in Scotland, um, it's much more, it's, it's a nationalised company. Um, Scottish Water is financed by the Scottish government. It can borrow independently to some extent, but it can also act in a commercial way. So it, it's allowed to engage in all kinds of activities outside the narrow set of water and sewerage responsibilities. It has a very conventional governance structure. So it's publicly owned. In a sense, it's a whole lot better than the English utilities. But there's no formal ways of engaging with the community in terms of thinking about investment decisions, big choices. So that, you know, there's no shareholder who's extracting dividends, but it doesn't tick the box in terms of the kind of participation we might think was important in order to address the sort of the nature and climate emergency. You know, who is to pay 
to the new infrastructure that we need you know which generation is going to pay for it how is that to be financed then the third example the welsh water uh, organization del cymru is um, owned by a public company limited by guarantee it's separate from the welsh government it's entirely debt financed and it has a much more interesting form of governance it has a, a board but it also has what are described as um, members and these are not formal stakeholder representatives but they are members of the community who put themselves forward to be members and they are involved in providing scrutiny for some of those decisions so they kind of they 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 represent a different kind of accountability relationship now it's not perfect but it's an interesting structure and it's different again from the scottish one i think it's it's more interesting in some ways in terms of how might you manage some of those challenges around you know adaptation and renewal so let's shift to a different system uh, this is care so this is you know most care that's provided is not a part of a capital intensive system it's it's a human intensive system it requires revenue funding um, this could be via the state um, insurance systems it could be through individuals paying directly um, generally it's cash constrained so you, you the care system is is one particularly in western europe with aging populations where needs are growing very fast and the cash available for the system to operate is not growing fast so the default increasingly is towards um, efficient systems so typically low paid staff working in a highly regulated what in the uk we call a time and task system so you know you go to somebody's house you've got 15 minutes to make them breakfast make sure they're up make sure they take their medication do one or two more things and then you're out it's, it's very much a low trust system highly bureaucratized often managed a bit like a, you know a fast food um, company through franchises or branches you know it's not particularly profitable on a private basis and therefore it has to be run on this very kind of efficient system and it's typically viewed as a kind of, you know, a client or customer system um, in that sense. And of course, it depends on huge amounts also of unpaid care work. This is why I sort of call it a, a human intensive system, because there's, you know, most care is not paid for through any formal arrangement. Um, and often that is not integrated with formal systems either. However, um, you know, there are interesting um, exceptions. So here's another Welsh example. This is uh, a care organisation called Cartrevi Cymru. Cartrevi Cymru in, in English is Homes Wales. That's the literal translation. Now, this is, this is quite an interesting organisation because it's starting to get somewhere more towards that participation. Now, if we think about a capital intensive system like water, you could have arguments about who owns the assets okay, and how are those governed and, and managed. In a care system which is human intensive it's a different kind of debate that we need to be having because it's not about who owns the assets but it's about who designs the services and who gets to kind of have an input into that and car trevi cymru is an interesting model um, it's quite large they employ uh, 1200 people supporting more than 600 members of the community it was originally a charity, so it was originally on a non-profit basis, but the management decided that they wanted to turn it into a cooperative 
and in particular a, a multi-stakeholder cooperative. So the members of the cooperative include the workers, um, those people receiving care, but also members of the community, so friends, families, other community members. Um, um, membership's optional, people, people in those categories can join, they don't have to join, but also it's implied that you know membership is an active choice and that people, if people who choose to be members need to do something. You know, it's not a sense that everybody's automatically a member. So it starts to have some quite interesting characteristics here. Um, the governance is via trustees like a charity, but there's also a council of members. So members actually are involved in, in, in decision making. Um, and I think it's, 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 it's very interesting in, in this sense that it's recognizing different kinds of people and the relations between them as being very important in terms of thinking about how care is to be provided. And also they do interesting things like supporting people who receive care to also become volunteers in cases when they're able to do that. So in a sense, trying to get out of this idea of you have the people who are cared for, you have the people who are the carers to making a more fluid relationship. And this is also very much a place-based form of organization because it has to involve people who are friends and families and community members. Now, there are many positive things here, but the struggle with this system is the, is the really severe financial constraints of the model. So local authorities pay for a lot of care in the UK, but they are massively cash constrained. There's been big struggles to try to get higher wages for care workers, and that's something this organisation is committed to, but it's not a straightforward task because, you know, the, the, the finances are constrained. So it's not a fully resolved model, but I think it's a very interesting way of thinking about a, a human intensive service in a way that kind of gives some common, you know, access or participation to that. So that brings us on to the idea of places, because if we think about people and systems, then they come together in places. And I think the place-based aspect is also really important, not least because places are very different. Big cities, small towns have different characteristics. And if we're thinking about foundational systems and how they work, we also have to think about them in relation to a specific place. Um, the example on the slide, it's another Welsh example. This is a town called Blaenafestiniog. It's a deindustrialized town um, where the industry was slate mining. Um, it's located in the mountains in a national park. Um, it's a low-income place with a very strong um, community. Um, and it's sort of shifted from having an extractive mining industry to an extractive tourist industry. So it's like lots of places around the world, you know, Airbnb is now the kind of the villain. Um, it's created a housing problem for local people. At the same time, they've lost their banks. They've lost a lot of public services. So quite common issues. And the question is, how are those issues to be resolved in ways that are um, you know, appropriate to that community. So in, in this particular place, the, the, the form of activity has been a network of social enterprises which are doing different but connected things based around um, provision of services like care, um, training up young people, taking ownership of assets like, the, the, like a community pub, building tourist infrastructure, uh, managing the leisure centre. So it's 
it's partly about the ownership and control of assets, but it's also about designing services that fit the needs of the place, particularly how do you keep young people when the job situation is not so good? How do you make connections? And how do you also work with other actors at different scales to address some of the bigger problems around housing, local energy and healthcare? So this is not a town that can solve all of its problems. It has to work with others. So that place-based dimension I think is also important in thinking about how do systems work and how do they how do systems connect with people so just to pull things together um, some reflections um, so thinking about the foundational economy in this kind of phase of renewal and adaptation it's it, it's uncertain because we can see the things that need to happen but we don't necessarily have all the answers and I think this is this is a really interesting theme that we're kind of exploring intellectually and practically a series of kind of answers to questions that we're formulating but if you're trying to reflect on the kind of the foundational economy and social property then obviously my starting point in the kind of foundational economy 1.0 is this idea that you know foundational services provide personal security you know they allow people citizens to live their lives but how can we also think about the foundational economy in ways that contribute to social wealth or, or, or social property and what kinds of social property might that be and can we think about the, the forms of participation that would help remake that economy in, in a more collective or solidaristic way and I think this requires us to think about a whole series of issues around 21st century citizenship because it clearly means access to those good quality services and that needs to be you know you know reinforced that we can't take those services whether it's social services or material services we can't take those for granted but we also need to think about you know ownership um, how can assets be organized collectively but how do we also think about having that voice into accountability relationships democratic systems and not only ownership of assets or ownership of the design of services but also ownership of that responsibility so particularly where we've got big issues of intergenerational justice that participation has to input into those questions as well it's not simply about the kind of the the, the nice stuff it's about the tricky stuff as well and those answers are going to be obviously very specific to the systems that we're looking at so water is very different from care and also very different to the place so Lyon of in the mountains of North Wales is very different from um, from a big city um, and where are we starting from so are we starting from a, a privatized system a financialized system are we starting from a system that's in public ownership but with large bureaucracies are we starting from a mix what are the activity characteristics what are the funding needs um, what are the accounting rules around assets and liabilities? Some of those things can be quite problematic. If we're thinking about how do we organize collective infrastructures, what are the possibilities around scale? Is it national? Is it regional? Is it local? Local isn't always going to be the best way to do things. And how does participation happen? You know, how do you, how do voices get heard when many of those voices are unorganized? So you know, labour is increasingly disorganised, but other voices too have not been formally organised and recognised. So lots of um, how questions, I think. So we then can think about 
you know, what, what are the, with a small p, the, the, the politics around this, we need to think about the actors and how they work together. The central and local state were clearly very important in the first phase, and they're going to remain important, but in perhaps in a more collaborative role. We need to think about, you know, intermediary institutions, um, trade unions, cooperatives, housing associations, organisations that in practical terms have balance sheets, can borrow, have governance capabilities, are connected to places. In a sense, the capabilities that we want in our actors are quite diverse. And then we need to think about what, what kinds of interventions, um, you know, this could be around social innovation, interventions that allow new ways of doing things and learning using the resources of the state, not simply you know, financing resources, but it's regulatory powers through social licensing to remake systems in different ways. And you know, a, a big issue that continuously recurs is, is that the fiscal environment, you know, how do we make a case for taxation, which is not going to, you know, taxation remains important for funding public services and so on. So I've come to the end. Um, so, just to reiterate, so the, we think about the foundational economy, it's, 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 it's a case of saying, how do we get beyond a description of the economy? How do we get beyond kind of the regret for kind of losing some of those things that used to exist to a kind of intellectual, practical and political challenge? And I think that's, that's really the, the challenge that was set out for this workshop. So it's, it's really nice to connect with that, to think about possibilities of um, adapting and renewing the foundational economy in different in different systems and in different places. And I shall stop at that point. Julie, you mentioned at the beginning, or I, I actually mentioned uh, that the uh, Wales has recognized um, the foundational economy uh, approach. And, could you tell us a bit more about what that kind of recognition entailed in terms of uh, policies? We heard about um, the, the water utility, water provision. Um, could you give us a, a little overview of that, that particular approach? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the water utility is a kind of historic decision that was made a long time back um, that, you know, somebody had some vision and decided that that was the kind of a, a good organizational structure. So the, the, the foundational economy um, developments in Wales, I think, have two elements. One is the, the Welsh government, which is a, a devolved government with quite limited powers. Um, it's still very dependent upon London government, but in as much as it has powers, it's adopted uh, a foundational economy approach in that it's trying to pay attention to key infrastructures, particularly in its policies around housing and transport. And it's trying to recognize some of those foundational economy principles. So it's, 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 it's been adopted as a principle of government. It's now kind of working its way through different parts of government. I would say it's quite early days. It's very easy for governments to say things. And it's, it's you know the process of seeing things come out in policy, but they have done some very interesting things. So they had um, they spent um, almost five million pounds on what was called a challenge fund, where they invited um, 
community organizations, third sector, small businesses to come up with innovations that they wanted to experiment on in the foundational economy. And they funded those. It wasn't a program. It said, well, tell us what you'd like to do around food or energy or care, and we will fund you for a year to try something. And then they created a community of or several communities of practice around those experiments to try to learn. And obviously that's one of the things that governments, you know, governments have programs and the program ends and everybody moves on. So they were trying to kind of learn from those things. So there's been strands in government, but I think equally important is um, adoption of foundational economy as a kind of concept by a lot of third sector organizations, the housing associations, which provide all the social housing in Wales or most of it, um, a lot of the community groups. So in a sense, civil society in the third sector is also interested in the foundational economy. So they can kind of put pressure on government in a sense, it's not a government, you know, it shouldn't be a government thing. It should be something that is owned by different parts of, 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 of the country because they can say, no, no, that's your, you're, you're not doing it the way we want you to do it. You know, they are developing. So to kind of come up with the foundational economy kind of objective is one thing but to turn it into a set of actions i think is happening through government works and civil society and third sector actions it's 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 early days but there are quite interesting things happening thank you julie okay yeah thanks so much uh, so much julie um, I actually have two questions. I'm very much interested in the mixed or hybrid character of the foundational economy, because uh, you and others always stress that the foundational economy is not just um, a public economy, but a mixture from the state and communal actors, private actors, um, civil society actors. And it would be great if you could elaborate a bit more on the role of private actors within the foundational economy and uh, yeah, sta state-led regulation with regard to the private actors who contribute to the foundational economy. That would be uh, very interesting to hear more about that. And in some, I would be interested if you would call it a kind of public-private commons partnership or public-private community partnership. That's one question. And my other question is in the um, Wolfgang Streeck, who wrote the introduction to the German translation of your book, he called the foundational economy um, an everyday communism. And I would just like to hear what you think about this characterization. Yes, yeah, so I think it's the foundational economy is, is hybrid in the sense that that's how the collection of systems happens to be organized. So, you know, in Western Europe, you know, we take for granted things like health and education are mostly public systems, transportation, mostly public. But then when you get into things like um, food distribution, retail, <clears throat> bank, those are typically systems controlled by the private sector. I mean, they're equally important to us. But they, you know, you could have an argument about whether food distribution should be a, should be publicly owned or not. But in a sense, where we start from is a there's, there's a difference between the kind of where we are and, and a normative answer. I mean, the normative answer might take us in different places. But 
pragmatically, what we have is a hybrid system. And there are some places where you, the obvious thing might be to say, well, we, we reverse the privatization. So we, we want to you know, recreate a public organization, or we might say the opportunities are to do different things. I think we need to distinguish between small companies and big companies. If you think about something like food distribution, it's dominated by big companies, big food distributors, large food retailers. And I think there, the role of the state is to, um, is to, is to think more imaginatively about forms of regulation. So we, in the book, talked a bit about ideas about social licensing. That in a sense, if you're a supermarket, you've got a kind of local monopoly, you know, in the sense you've got people have no choice but to go and use your shop on the whole. So in a sense, in return for that kind of monopoly, what are the obligations on a supermarket in terms of it could be employment, um, you know, that you offer, you know, proper employment contracts, not zero hours, you, you know, all kinds of employment related things it could be about whether you offer a certain amount of local food so you try to support the local food economy where possible it could be that supermarkets have a lot of space could you allow community uses of your physical estate so but social licensing would be say okay we, it's, it's unrealistic to think about you know nationalizing the supermarkets i don't think politicians would think that was a sensible thing to do. I mean, supermarkets are very good at, you know, at efficient distribution of food. Uh, but a social license might say, well, in return for your local monopoly, you should have some social obligations, which could be defined in different ways. So when you've got big companies, I think we can think imaginatively about how do you kind of, um, you know, manage that, you know, in a sense, require corporations to do things. Now that's quite difficult for politicians to get their head around. We've had discussions with politicians about that, and they they they're a little bit scared of that. They think that's quite a, a you know a strong thing to do, even though it seems to me quite an obvious thing to do. I mean, what are supermarkets going to do? They're not going to go away. You know, they they have to be there. Um, but then you have small private companies and things like care, for example, a lot of the providers of care are small family enterprises, which are often embedded in communities, which have lot, you know, very strong values. So I think there's a kind of interesting questions about, you know, the private sector is a very diverse set of enterprises from the kind of, the, you know, the privatized financialized utilities, the private equity owners of care homes. They're one category, you've got things like supermarkets, um, and then you've got things like small private providers who, you know, or in construction, if you think about challenges around um, retrofitting private housing for, you know, to reduce energy use, you know, you're going to have to work with small private businesses to do that. And that's one thing, again, in Wales, Wales is trying to kind of coordinate things like the retrofitting of homes, both social and privately owned accommodation to kind of deal with climate challenge. So I think that kind of um, hybrid kind of provision is quite different in different systems. And I think there's, a, there's certainly a role for government in each of those systems. And it will vary quite a lot depending upon what you're trying to achieve, where you're starting from. But um, 
politicians are not always keen, I think, to do very radical things, unfortunately. Um, so I think that, that in some cases, it's the idea of partnership is interesting. I think there are areas where you can see those partnerships happening, particularly in place context. I think that's where place comes in, because you've got actors who are often invested in, you know, emotionally invested in places who want things to happen. And I think in a place-based context, you can often see more potential for public, private, third sector actors to cooperate around things in a way that in a high level is quite hard to make sense of. So I think that that's that that is quite interesting. Um, everyday communism, well, it's um, I, I'm not sure what, what 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 I think about that. I think it's 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 a nice way of thinking, but I guess it's 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 a kind of it's a it's 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 it, it's maybe you could say it's 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 an ideal, um, but I guess it's um, it's 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 a simplification as well because I think because as you 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 said so because if we look at foundational systems as a whole they are this complicated mix. And you know, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of improve each of those systems in ways that deliver better services and give more participation or more collective rights. But I think communism is probably not a, you know, maybe even not a useful way of thinking about it. Thanks a lot. Um, that was a really inspiring um, presentation, but it also raises a lot of questions. Um, my name is Manuel Lutz and I'm a planner and political scientist and working in Germany in Potsdam at the university. And from that perspective, just one question. Um, how do you deal within your foundational economics approach um, with the question of um, co-optation? You know, talking about the poor helping themselves. I was just wondering from looking at the examples that you raised, I was wondering how do we get there where foundational economy is recognized and how do we actually assess those experiments that you talk about? Because from the political science, welfare restructuring, um, urban restructuring, we have a long debate on how um, the poor are co-opted to actually help themselves, make themselves, govern themselves, you know, how deprivation-based <laughs> are those experiments and how would you, from your perspective, or what kind of like indicators or clues do you have in order to assess what might be transformative perspectives in these experiments? I was just wondering how you deal with that. Yeah, I think that, that those are really good questions because I think there's a lot of dangerous territory here around sort of sort of knee-jerk localism, say local, as soon as you start talking about places, people sort of say, well, you know, you should have local solutions, which inevitably means that the deprived places have less resource and are expected to kind of solve problems. So whilst participation is a good thing and asking people what they want and having citizens juries and all of that kind of um, democratic process is really good. I think it's important that that it starts from recognizing um, you know, spatial inequalities in places. So for example, um, the Welsh town I mentioned, we said that, you know, it's, it's very in conventional GVA terms, it's, it's really low. It's one of the lowest places in the UK in terms of per head 
income but people want to live there because it's it's a it's a beautiful place there's a strong community um that people are prepared to sacrifice you know a, a better paid job for quality of life and the answer isn't to say you know and there's a lot of imaginative people there and the answer isn't to say well you just solve your problems the answer is i think is you have to work those people have to be given access to regional and national resources and systems to help them solve problems and that's what this group is doing in a way i mean they're very enterprising they say well why should airbnb um you know make money as a platform um you know why why don't we own the tourist infrastructure you know in a sense why you know in the sense come back to the question about ownership it can should can a community own some of that property because that creates an income stream which is important but also helps you to control things like the local housing stock so how do you do things that make sure there are houses suitable houses for local people and also a community's ability to kind of to benefit from a tourist industry which otherwise is you know it's like a you know tourism is like mining all the ex all the owners live somewhere else <laughs> and extract the surplus um so it's a particular challenge so i think that that there's, there's there's always a danger that politicians see things like a foundational economy as an excuse to just say well you know communities you solve your problem in ways that are collaborative um but in a sense they need then you know they need resources to do that and they might need you know regulatory change or other things that that support them um so i think there's a there's a good route here, but it, it's, you know, it, it needs kind of, it, it needs thinking about to avoid just um, making people responsible for solving problems they are unable to solve and then blaming them when they don't solve those. In terms of measurement, um, I think you can look at things like residual income. Um, there's a housing association are working with based in the northeast of england and they are quite interested in thinking about using residual income as a measure for things that they're responsible for so they provide social housing they're starting to think about could we make interventions around public transport to not only reduce people's housing costs but to reduce their transportation costs so you you know they're saying well could we look at things like a residual income as a way of measuring effectiveness now of course i think that's not I think it's an interesting measure but it doesn't it won't capture all of the important things because you need to capture quality issues and other things as well not just income measures but I think there is an attempt to say well we could look at things in different ways we don't have to take mainstream conventional measures of success we can think about you know um, you know that well I mean there are lots of well-being measures subjective and objective well-being measures that are you know all, all the international organizations have dashboards of measures some of those I think are quite good um, but probably communities also need an input into saying well what would be the key measures for us how would we know that things were getting better um, so I think there's a kind of participative element important there in, in deciding whether the what are the what are the metrics that we want to use? Thank you, uh, Julie, for your uh, talk. Um, I, I actually had uh, the same question than uh, than Silke, so I have uh, I had to improvise 
other questions, but that's that's about it. No, no, no. Uh, my uh, my I had the question. One of the things I I try to grasp is um, okay. Essentially, the idea that you are expressing of the foundational economy is uh, uh, is uh, um, the fact that a, a series of uh, uh, services of, of spheres of social production that we can identify as fun foundational uh, to people's life uh, are actually opened up to um, uh, participations by the users, uh, by all sorts of stakeholders. Um, uh, and, 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 and if it is only this, uh, well, if it is more than this, what is more than this? And then is the question of participation. The question of participation, as you have mentioned, uh, there is uh, um, uh, clearly uh, is a big challenge in many, in many contexts. So I, I wonder the type of participation you're, you're talking about um is uh, is a participation uh like fine tuning within a given constraints like for example big supermarkets are uh, not just uh, um, a big distribution system they are competing with other supermarkets within a market and so they they follow they they are embedded within that competitive relations uh which limit to a certain extent, what they can do uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, all, all sorts of, of things. Uh, so I, I, I wonder, are we talking about fine tuning uh, some of the uh, um, uh, most difficult aspects uh, in terms of food, or, or of prices, of, of qualities, or we are talking about some more radical change, and in, in that case, what what are we talking about? What kind of radical changes we're talking about? And again, on the question of participation, participation. Uh, the, one of the reasons I think that uh, there is generally many lament low participation in in, in many uh, of uh, um, the public spheres uh, has got to do with the fact that uh, uh, first there is uh, a. a, a maybe a feeling of, of powerlessness in terms of what we do when if participation is constrained only to some advisory role, for example. Uh, and, and, uh, and another question is the question that participating in uh, 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 any sort of uh, management of collective goods uh, 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 requires uh, times and, and energies. And a lot of precarity is exactly uh, what limit uh, the times and energy to participate. And so here, obviously, there is, it is important to link it, to, to link the question of, of the foundational economy to the question of social property, precisely in terms of uh, uh, resources that, that uh, uh, give people time to participate. And, 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 and take things in their own hands as much as possible, uh, essentially. And, and finally, I'm sorry, just I was, your, your example, your, your, your discussion of, on, on care on the Welsh case is very interesting, but I was wondering whether you actually have uh, encountered the case of uh, 
Birdsorg in the Netherlands, uh, which is this incredible uh, healthcare community, healthcare organization with about 10,000 uh, or 12,000 now nurses uh, in this organization when there are no uh, managers, no boss, no middle managers, no regional managers, uh, and that the entire work is completely self-organized by the nurses in, in teams of 12, uh, where they give themselves their own tasks, they give themselves their own time in doing and prioritizing things in community cares. They operate as a, also a way to facilitate a network of collaborations among neighbors and relatives of the of the cared for, uh, so the amazing amazing freedom in in, in now, if there is anything close to uh, uh, <laughs> living communism in an in a work organization, that's what it looks like. Maybe, maybe, but that's that's it's amazing. That's amazing. The incredible power, and I know that they are now thinking to export this in Kent. Uh, this model of community care, but it's worthwhile to, 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 to look into it, I think. Thank you, the, the good questions. Yes, I, I've, I've come across the, the Birdsog model, and I think that that is quite influential, I think, now in people rethinking systems, as you say, because you give more autonomy to the workers to kind of use their professionalism and re reorganize things in ways that turn out to be much more effective. Um, and I think one of the problems with the Birdsog model is that it's it's quite high paid professionals. Um, whereas, you know, as you know, from the UK care system, it's a massively underfunded system, which is struggling with with very low paid workers. And in a sense, the Birdsog is a nice ideal, but question how to get to that within the constraints of public funding is a is a is, is a challenge. And I think for that reason, your, your your first point I think was 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 important because I, I wouldn't at all argue that the point about adapting and renewing infrastructures is, is to work in a very narrow space defined by markets and funding and governments. I think it has to be thought about on a system by system basis and a question about a pragmatic basis about well, where would you start and what's what are what things are possible first. And I would say if you were thinking about infrastructure systems, then you know the food system is one that I wouldn't have as a priority for thinking about reorganizing in a central way. But of course, you can encourage all kinds of alternative forms of distribution, you know, and there are lots of alternative forms of distribution, you know, social, you know, solidarity and farmers' markets and all kinds of things. But in practice, those are quite small. And one thing supermarkets do very well is, is, is deliver food at relatively low prices for households. So there are kind of interesting tensions. From a residual income point of view, supermarkets are very effective at meeting the needs of low income households, whereas a lot of alternative food distribution systems um, typically are not able to do that in the same way. Whereas I think in other areas like, you know, transport, care, other sectors, it's easy, easier to think, well, you might actually want to take different measures, which were much more radical in terms of how those are organized. So I think it's partly a question of system characteristics, priorities, what can you achieve politically, what's possible, 
Um, I certainly think that that you know working within narrow constraints may be necessary initially, but it shouldn't be an you know ambition shouldn't be limited to that. Um, and I think that the only way we can solve a lot of you know big problems is by fundamentally rethinking a lot of those systems. Um, but I think you, you also made a, a very nice point about the difficulties of participation, because you're right, it's easier to say we should open up and systems should be democratic, but of course, not everybody wants to contribute, not everybody has time, and you make inequalities there in terms of who's able to do things. Um, but I think that's why some of these, you know, interesting models are quite, are a way around that, because you can devise forms of intervention like membership systems which work around like the the care example which in a sense will accommodate people who are receivers of care workers community members and will recognize their limits of time and ability to engage and will seek to encourage you know help them to engage i think if you simply say we want a democratic system then not much will happen so i think the the design of that participation has to be thought about. And we know I was involved in a citizens assembly last year on climate change and a huge amount of work went into that and to try to make the citizens representative. It was very, very difficult to get a representative group of people. You know, obviously that's the objective. You can't have a citizens assembly unless your group of citizens represents, but it's very difficult to get that, you know, that representative group. But it, in, you know, if you put the resource in and support people with all kinds of things, then you can see that citizens assemblies do work as a form of a new kind of form of, of participation. It's just very resource intensive. So I think we have to recognize that and be, be creative about um, what participation might look like. This was the keynote and discussion with Julie Froud. It took place at the University of Jena on March 3rd, 2022. The workshop was held as part of the Collaborative Research Center Structural Change of Property. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about the topic, don't forget to tune in to the third episode of our little series on social rights and property. Next time, Massimo Del Angelis will speak about property, commons and the common. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and Twitter or visit our website. All the links are provided in the show notes. Goodbye and until next time. Appropriate. Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424-638-267.